Well, it feels like the 462nd Sunday after Pentecost. (laughs) We've been so busy the last few weeks. But what a wonderful day yesterday was when Father Alex was consecrated and installed as bishop in the midst of uh, grieving, losing him. Um, It was a great, glorious day. The service at the cathedral was packed. I can't say that every seat was filled, but there were very few empty seats. And many of you went up to the cathedral in Tallahassee for the service. I counted more than 30 just coming up on my side of the, of the, of the uh, communion rail. And I don't think anyone who went there came home disappointed. Wow, what a day it was. What a great and glorious day. And mostly God was glorified. One of my professors at the University of Florida was Sam Hill. He was a professor of religion. He died just a year ago and um, specialized in the history of the American South, the history of Christianity in the American South. And he was an Anglican. And he said Anglican worship at its height touches all of our senses. Our our sense of taste as we taste the bread and the wine, the touch as we touch the the prayer book, our our smell as we smell the incense, our sight as we as we see the the ritual and the decorations and the architecture and our hearing as we hear the music and the prayers. And those of you who were there experienced all those things, their five senses being enlightened and enlivened by worship. God was good to me. He blessed me greatly by giving me a seat at the end of the row of chairs. He knows I'm claustrophobic. I managed to sit next to Craig Brown Sr. and reconnect with him Stood in line with him for about 30 minutes outside. Was able to spend time with him. Jose read the Old Testament lesson. Beth read the New Testament lesson with so power she took out the sound system. And that's when the, that's when the audio cut out on the live stream. I'm told there is a plan to release a video with some other recorded audio. And we may not be able to get all of the sermon, but we should. The St. Peter's tech people are working on this. It's the worst nightmare for a uh, live streaming crew when the audio cuts off in the middle of the live stream. So if you are watching a live stream and were disappointed, um, hold in there. The, the people at St. Peter's have a plan to get it to you. Elena served as one of several dozen acolytes. Our music team served the diocese by providing the communion music, and several people told me how blessed we are to have a music team of such proficiency. Father Michael coped well. Okay, make sure you got it. But what you mean he vested in a cope and he really wore it well? A cope is a liturgical vestment. It looks like Superman's cape and uh, it looked really sharp. So he coped well. I was so proud of myself when I came up with that line. <laughs> Which brings me to one of the themes of the scripture readings today. Pride and Humility. I was blessed as a child to be involved with a lot of scripture memorization. In Sunday school, my parents made great sacrifices to send me to a Christian school. I'm very thankful to them for that where I memorized scripture. I learned a lot of scripture from my mom. My mom would quote scripture to us constantly. I can still hear her voice saying, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. She recited that one to me a lot. (laughs) Last week, Father Alex, in his last service here, spoke about 
pride and humility, and it's appropriate for someone moving into that position to speak on pride and, and, and humility. And this week, it's also appropriate to cover those topic, that topic. Now, you might think, I don't need two sermons in a row on pride. Well, you're Jesus' target audience today. Our scripture gospel reading opens up one Sabbath. It's the Sabbath day. When he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Now Luke in particular gives us several scenes of Jesus being invited to dinner, dining with others. He seems to be a welcome dinner companion. You can always bet if Jesus shows up for dinner, there's going to be an interesting conversation. Well, here, maybe the conversation got a bit too interesting for the host and the guest's comfort. Again, it's a Sabbath dinner, we are told. And we are told that Jesus is being carefully watched. That's because Jesus has been set up. A man has been brought in, apparently into the welcoming area in front of the house. A man, we're told, with dropsy. Now, dropsy is not a technical medical term. It's an old-fashioned, generic medical term for inflammation, what doctors today call edema, where the body accumulates water and fluid under the skin, and you have this swelling. Swelling caused by the body building up water within the body, fluid within the body. Now, today, a doctor would describe the swelling much more specifically as to what the causes were and the places of the swelling was. But in the old days, all such swelling was just called dropsy. Now, the host of the party is a ruler of the Pharisees. And it's pretty obvious that the dropsied man is a plant because the Pharisees are watching Jesus carefully. It's the Sabbath, and the rumor has come that Jesus has healed on the Sabbath before, which as far as the Pharisees are concerned means he's broken the law. He's done work on the Sabbath. And so the test is, what's he going to do when he sees this sick man on the Sabbath? And Jesus knows he's been set up because the Pharisees have said nothing to Jesus, and yet Luke tells us Jesus responds to the Pharisees, and he responds to them, and he asks them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And the Pharisees give no answer. They weren't prepared for a discussion about it. They wanted to see if Jesus would do it. And there's an awkward silence. And Jesus goes to the man, heals him, and sends him on his way. Can you imagine seeing that? The liquid of the inflammation, the edema just drifting away. The skin no longer stretched and bloated. And he asked the Pharisees, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things, we're told. There's another awkward silence because, of course, common humanity demands that if an animal or your child falls into a well on the Sabbath, you would do work and get the animal or the child out of the well. There's a connection here between the man with dropsy and the son in the well. The danger to both is drowning. The son would drown from water outside the body. The dropsied man would, in a sense, drown from the the water inside the body. Both face danger of being immersed in too much water and dying. So the man is healed. And then the group moves to the dinner table. 
And there is apparently an undignified scramble for seats because we're told that he told, Jesus told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. And Jesus says, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when the host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I recently heard an Episcopal priest in New York City, uh, Jacob Smith, tell a story that um, when he was in college, he went to a wedding and um, the, the thing was there was a reception afterwards and there was a buffet line. It was at a golf club, so it's good food. And he was in college. And so he went through and he got three slices of roast beef and piles of mashed potatoes and extra rolls and two bottles of beer that he holds in his hand. And he took his, his, plate, his plate into the reception hall. And he looks around and there's a seat. And so he sat down at the seat. And immediately an usher shows up and says, this is the seat for the bride's aunt. What's your name? And Jacob said, Jacob Smith. And the usher looked at the list and says, you're not on my list. Let me show you where to go. And so he got him up and he had to walk him weaving in and out of all the tables where people were sitting, carrying this huge gluttonous plate of food and his two bottles of beer all the way back to the back of the room next to where the doors to the kitchen were. He said, I can identify with this story. And maybe it's happened to you where you walked into some place and sat down and then, oh, now no, you're in the wrong place and you've got to move. Well, probably there's more awkward silence at this point. I mean, can you imagine the look on the face of the guy who's sitting at the highest chair when Jesus says this? How embarrassing. More awkward silence. Not chit-chat like a normal dinner gathering. And then Jesus, he's not yet finished. He turns to the host and tells him that at the next dinner party he might consider some different guests. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Well, the awkwardness is all over the place. I wouldn't be surprised if Jesus wasn't invited back to that house for dinner. But what really is going on here? What's going on is even more disturbing than what we've read in the reading. I won't revisit the whole thing, but what's the most important thing? Three most important things about reading the scriptures, location, location, location. And the most important one is location in scripture. What comes before and what comes after? Here's a pop quiz. What comes before Luke 14? Luke 13. Very good. It was in last week's appointed readings. Father Alex changed those readings for the significance of his, of his leaving us, which is okay. He had the right to do that. If you complain, if you, if you have a problem with Alex changing those scriptures, then you can complain to the bishop. <laughs> but those readings were this. Now listen to, to this reading and, and think of what we were just talking about. Luke chapter 13, beginning at verse 22. He went on his ways through towns and villages, 
teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Behold, some who are last will be first, and some are first who will be last. And then we have the story of people eating and drinking with Jesus, but not finding the narrow door. And Jesus teaches them that the first will be last and the last will be first. Jesus says there's a narrow door that some who even eat and drink with him will not enter. And that some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. And then we get a story about a dinner party where Jesus talks about being first and last. Maybe there's a connection here. Jesus says that some people who eat and drink with him haven't found the narrow door and don't understand that status in the human social economy doesn't equate to status in the heavenly economy. And then we get a story about exactly that. Well, let's start with the narrow door. In Matthew, Jesus puts it this way. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the, great, is the gate and broad is the road that leads to, to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. What's the broad path that lots of people find? The broad path says we don't need a savior. We can save ourselves. We can be good enough. We can try harder. We can make our way to heaven. All we have to do is be good enough. But the narrow path is that we can't be good enough and we need Jesus. I suggested to you that this point is what's going on with the man with dropsy that Jesus heals and this business about the Sabbath. Last week, Father Alex mentioned or preached on Nehemiah, the people returned from exile. It's at that point that the Pharisees begin their movement. They knew they'd gone into exile because they had broken God's laws, and so they're going to build the wall around God's laws wider and wider so that nobody will break God's laws again or else they have to go into exile again. And they began piling on extra laws onto all the laws and extra laws onto more laws. Nothing in Moses' laws forbids healing on the Sabbath. And yet the Pharisees had redefined work to include just about everything so that no one would break the law so that they could be righteous. And that only leads to self-righteousness. Instead of simply taking the Sabbath as a day of rest, they'd created all sorts of extra burdens and requirements in order to gain merit by following these extra laws. A simple command to rest on the Sabbath had been overlaid by an abundance of rules to be followed so that one could gain merit in the eyes of God. They turned an idyllic day of idea of a day of rest into a nightmare of complicated rules under which a sick man could not even be healed all so that they could gain merit in the eyes of God but Jesus insisted that acceptance into the kingdom of God doesn't depend on a man or woman's merit 
not on anything they have done, but on God's mercy and what Christ will do. God had never approved of these strict, inhuman, cruel rules. And so Jesus heals the man. So here's the narrow question. Is Jesus a lawbreaker or is he Lord? Must we depend on our own merit, our own goodness, our own righteousness, following our own self-created rules? Or must we depend on Jesus? He's the narrow door, the narrow path. Then Jesus begins to give the marks of those who have found this narrow way. In our reading today, he gives us two marks of a Christian. And Luke will give us more. We'll see that next week. But the two marks of the Christian that Jesus gives us here are humility and generosity. When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit in a place of honor, and so on. Now, this is not a lesson in etiquette. Jesus is pointing out that these people are seeking status. They can't just attend a party and have fun, but they must exalt themselves. They must feed their pride. Jesus' point here is that the kind of things that get us good seats in this life will not ensure a good seat in the kingdom of God. We can't make a claim to status in the kingdom of God based on our own social, political, cultural status. We picture that every Sunday in our procession into church. The big shot, the priest, is at the end of the line and the acolyte is at the front of the line. This developed in the Roman world when the bishops would go from house church to house church, usually very early on a Sunday morning, which was a work day in the early church, led by people carrying torches so they could see where they were going. And this is the exact opposite of how processions worked in the Roman world. You've seen this in movies before, great big processions. The emperor is at the start of the procession, and then come the emperor's best friends, and then the emperor's advisors, and then come the servants picking up the trash that's dropped by the big shots. But it's the exact opposite when we process into church. The little kids go first. In fact, when the kids came back as acolytes, we messed up because we just naturally put the senior acolyte in front, and we didn't even think about it until somebody said, wait a second, that's, that's wrong. We got, the junior acolyte needs to be in front. And so we're going to have to retrain our acolytes because the littlest kid is supposed to lead us. And the priest comes up behind picking up the trash, which is pretty much what clergy do anyway. (laughs) But we picture that every Sunday. Pride puts us first. We want to be at the front of the line, and it damages us because when we look down on everyone else, we can't see what's above us. But the Christian knows there's always something Someone who is above us. God always destroys the proud. This is all over scripture. Read the Psalms. Look at Pharaoh. Pride is destroyed by God. Because pride says I'm good enough. But the Christian realizes we must rely on God's mercy. The key to humility is honesty. Honesty in knowing that my sin cost Christ his life through death on a cross. Christ humbled himself even to death on the cross, Paul writes, for me. The great hymn by Isaac Watts, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but lost and poor contempt on all my pride. 
Humility is about honesty about myself, my sins, what my sins cost God. One of my favorite archbishops of Canterbury was Michael Ramsey. He um, was not distracted by the management of the church, but still spoke as a pastor while serving as archbishop. I just want to read you something he had, pu- had published in a church newsletter on humility, the keys to humility. I'm just going to read it. How to develop humility. Point number one, thank God often and always. Thank him carefully and wonderingly for your continuing privileges and for every experience of his goodness. Thankfulness is a soil in which pride does not easily grow. Thankfulness is a soil in which pride does not easily grow. Number two, take care about confession of your sins. As time passes, the habit of being critical about people and things grow more than each of us realize. Number three, on the steps of building humility, be ready to accept humiliations. They can hurt terribly, but they can help to keep you humble. All these can be so many chances to be a little nearer to our Lord. There is nothing to fear if you are near to the Lord and in his hands. Number four, do not worry about status. There is only one status that our Lord bids us to be concerned with, and that is our proximity to him. If a man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there also shall my servant be. That is our status, to be near our Lord, wherever he may ask us to go with him. Number five, use your sense of humor. Laugh at things. Laugh at the absurdities of life. Laugh at yourself. Four things, five things to keep in mind in building humility. Thanksgiving confessing our sins, not being worried about our status, and to laugh at ourselves. Well, then Jesus turns from talking about attending feasts to giving feasts, and here he moves to generosity. I like a phrase that Matthew Wilcox uh, came up with. Um, Jesus is talking here about disinterested goodness. Not uninterested goodness, but disinterested. That means not having a stake in the outcome And Wilcox goes on to talk about how there's a choice we have between immediate gratification or eternal significance. Jesus says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Immediate gratification here is the immediate repayment. You can invite your friends and family and have a great time. Feel good at the end of the dinner party that it was all a big success when they leave, but it will have no eternal significance. Jesus makes the same point in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's version. Jesus says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. 
But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. There's the conflict, contrast between the immediate gratification and the eternal significance. Some Pharisees are, are bringing offerings to the temple and they have someone to go in front of them blowing a trumpet. None of you are laughing. Wouldn't that be so absurd? Remember during COVID, you used to have the offering plates in the back? Can you imagine somebody walking in the, the, the front of the church with somebody in front of them with a the trumpet? And then blowing the trumpet as they, as they march up and place their check in the offering plate. How silly, how ridiculous. Well, that's what you got. That's your reward. Everybody noticed you put a check in the offering plate. Whoa. You don't have any eternal significance. Jesus tells us to give without a concern for that immediate gratification. Disinterested goodness doesn't include the following. We've not expressed disinterested goodness if we express generosity as duty. I confess I struggle with this. I feel like I have a duty to give. Well, then if I feel like I have a duty to give, and then when I give, then I get my gratification. I did my duty. We've not expressed disinterested goodness if we express generosity as a way to gain something in our own self-interest, to get approval from others, or to be remembered in the future. The academic world is full of foundations and endowed chairs and all these ways of being remembered forever and ever. To gain something, giving to gain something. When I was a kid, um, we, there was a guy who came to church for a while and stopped coming to church. He was a very wealthy man. And my father was the pastor. And uh, um, he stopped coming to church, but he kind of liked us. And about the third week of December, every year, he would write a big check to the church. Because his accountants had looked at his income and figured he needed to make some charitable giving. So he would make a big check to the church. We were happy to get the money, but um, simply reallocating money from the IRS to the church, well, that's your gratification. That's your, well, you got your reward. There's your reward. The rabbi said that the best gift is one given by someone who does not know to whom it is given and received by one who does not know who gave it. Now, we aren't talking about birthday gifts to children. Don't make scripture so dead that it becomes foolish. Make it direct so that it changes your life. The key point is to exchange immediate gratification for eternal significance. Let's be humble and generous. And most of all, let's find the narrow door. In Jesus' name, amen.